welcome to Health to Be Determined, a podcast about the social determinants of health. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Gabriel Kaplan, board president of the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. Dr. Kaplan speaks with Dr. Anthony Iten, senior vice president at the California Endowment, about how political power, or lack of it, impacts the health of the public. So, Dr. Iten, thank you so much for joining us today. We're thrilled to have the opportunity to have this conversation. Thanks for having me. So, I wondered if you could tell uh, our audience about how you and the California Endowment have sought to position public health organizations to address the social determinants of health. Yeah, it's a, it's a real pleasure to work at a foundation like the California Endowment, um, having worked most of my career in public health organizations and in governmental public health organizations. And so I come to the work at the California Endowment, which I often liken to a private public health agency because we have a mission to improve the health status of all Californians. I come to this work with a governmental public health sensibility, which is sort of an accountability for trying to get to the root of a broad spectrum of health problems. And so we've been supporting our public health agencies across the state, particularly the local public health agencies, but also the state public health agency, to form coalitions um, across health departments. There's one in the Bay Area called the Bay Area Regional Health Inequities Initiative. We have one in Southern California and one in the central part of the state as well, to actually work together to develop new public health practices to target the social determinants of health. And quite honestly, targeting the social determinants of health is not sufficient. Many organizations have sort of begun to think about the social determinants of health as sort of almost discrete factors that we have to target at the individual level to help individuals find housing, to help individuals navigate healthy food, to help individuals find safe places to recreate, all of which is important. But we think that taking an individual focus on these issues is just basically taking the medical model and applying it to the social determinants. What we've tried to encourage organizations to do instead is to essentially develop an analysis which takes us to the root of why we see inequities in so many different domains of American human existence, you know, from education to employment to land use to criminal justice to health. And if you can craft an analysis that gets you to the root of that, then you can start designing strategies that help tackle the root causes. That's excellent. Yeah, we um, had a conference uh, several months ago, our annual Chronic Disease Academy, where staff from across the country come and share ideas and hear from thought leaders and uh, do some specific developmental work in particular chronic disease program areas. And Dr. Jewel Mullen spoke to us, and she expressed alarm during a plenary session about what she called the medicalization of the social determinants of health problem. And exactly as you characterize it, is thinking that if we can simply connect doctors as human service hubs, doctor's offices as human service hubs to meet the immediate needs of families with medical concerns, then that's sort of a sufficient way of addressing the problem. And I think what you point out is that a population health approach is really what public health is best at and what we're best at advising and um, sharing with folks and helping advance. And that's really what you're calling on the partners of the endowment to do. One of the things that I noted in when I wrote out my president's challenge is that the fundamental challenge for public health to do that is 
we're arriving very often at tables where we haven't been before. And so we have to approach those tables with some degree of humility. We can't show up at a, an education uh, roundtable and say, well, you've been doing education wrong for the last hundred years or, you know, at a housing department and saying, you know, let us fix the way you run your housing programs. But we do want to achieve a public health perspective on a lot of these problems. So how do you counsel the partners of the endowment to do that? And how do you get public health at the table? Yeah, those are, that's a fantastic question. So let me give you a couple of principles that we try to, you know, embed in our, our support for public health. One is that there's this notion of what we call inside out and outside in. So inside out is working with people who operate within systems like an education system or a land use system or a criminal justice system to find champions within those systems that are looking to engage in what we refer to as transformative change. You know, change that doesn't take the status quo as a given and questions what the core purpose of that institution is, is really supposed to be about. And then outside in is engaging the people who are most impacted by the inequity being generated by that system or not being essentially appropriately responded to by that system. And so this notion of an inside out and an outside in, a balanced strategy, is about sort of shifting the decider, who decides what the agenda should be. You know, to our view, too often that is the system decides. We have these systems that essentially, and this is natural human behavior, it's not, it's not malicious or anything like that, but systems, including public health systems, try to organize the world in ways that benefit that system so that problems are defined according to the solutions that that system has to provide. And what we'd like to you know, help public health actors understand is that our role is to essentially put the resident, the community resident, at the center of the decision-making process. That, to us, is about equity. And so in order to do that, you have to create mechanisms to empower community residents to participate in these decision-making processes outside of health. So when we're working with criminal justice, it's about formerly incarcerated people. How do we bring them to the table in a way that they can appropriately interact to help set the priorities of that system? Similarly with education or land use or employment, what have you. So there's, a, there's an idea behind this, which is that at its root, democracy is good for your health. Optimizing meaningful participation in, in decision-making is good for people's health. Mm, that's great. I had sort of saved this question for later, but I think I want to ask it now uh, because of where you've just left us is, you know, I, I, when I first heard you speak on this issue back in 2008, you stated that where you wanted to take this work, and I think you were still in the Bay Area at Alameda County at the time, was to look at community engagement, civic health, uh, and political empowerment. And that that was where you felt the conversation needed to begin because anything else that proceeded from that wouldn't be sufficiently responsive to the fundamental issues that were creating the current social determinants of health. And so I I wondered if you could talk to us about the experiences you've had in trying to address this issue and how successful you've been uh, in using public health to activate community engagement and civic participation and, and community voice. And what are some of the techniques that you've employed to be successful with that? Yeah. No, thanks for that question. Well, let me step back just a little bit because I want your listeners to understand 
that the way that I and others came to the conclusions that we've come to around optimizing democracy as a public health strategy starts with epidemiology. It starts with calculating life expectancy across jurisdictions at the census tract level and seeing dramatic differences across a political jurisdiction, a city, a county of 20 to 25, in some cases, 30 years a difference in life expectancy between different neighborhoods in the same place. And when you look at that, it's incumbent upon the public health community to explain what's producing those differences. And one of the first conclusions you have to reach is that these are places that live in the same political regime. In other words, they're served by the same health department. They're served by the same you know, parks and recreation department. They're served generally by the same educational district. So how is it that you have, you know, radically different outcomes across a jurisdiction that is served by the same sort of policy regime? And the only conclusion you can come to, at least to my mind, I mean, once you look at things like access to health care, you find that that doesn't correlate with these differences. Behaviors, they correlate somewhat, uh, but not nearly enough to explain the differences. But the only conclusion you can come to is that people living in different places and under the same political regime have different levels of political power, different levels of, of access to meaningful opportunity to make change in their communities. And I have example after example, story after story about how the same agency performs different levels of service in different parts of the community, depending, in, in essence, on how much power that community uh, has relative to um, other communities in that same jurisdiction. So, you know, looking at these maps, you know, in Alameda County, across California, in 30 cities across the U.S., we saw, you know, the same pattern replicating itself over and over and over again. And so, at some level, we started to ask ourselves, well, if this is the root cause, I mean, if differential power, differential levels of opportunity, and the ability to essentially hold systems accountable, even in the same jurisdiction, uh, are shaping people's health outcomes. How do we get to the root of that? And, you know, sort of plain and simple, we concluded that we needed to build social, political, and economic power in a critical mass of people in the communities that were most impacted by the inequitable results, the ones with the shortest life expectancy, so that they could hold systems more accountable to essentially provide equitable outcomes. And that sounds like, you know, fancy political speak or something like that. But, you know, the political outcomes we're talking about here are things like a park or a grocery store in your neighborhood. Those kinds of decisions are made at political decision-making tables. And those communities that lack sufficient power are much less likely to get an equitable allocation of those health protective resources, like, again, a park. So that's how we came to that conclusion. I want people to understand that this was through an analysis of epidemiologic data, primarily looking at life expectancy and differential outcomes across relatively small geographic areas that were profound. Now, how have we operationalized this? Well, I want to just return a little bit to the the answer I gave you before, which is about this whole notion of an inside-out strategy. The inside-out is working with institutions, you know, and systems and the leaders and, and champions within those systems that are trying to transform those systems, but also an outside-in strategy, which is essentially organizing a critical mass of people in a community to hold those systems, like the school system or the criminal justice system or the land use system, accountable 
for serving you know communities that have essentially the greatest degree of threat from inadequate services from those uh, particular you know institutions let me st- I don't want to go on too long with that but let me stop there and see if, if that if that helps um, I, I will point out however that when I say critical mass and this is you know seems kind of amazing to people we're talking about half a percent or one percent of the population in question. We're not talking about masses of people. Our political system sways on the efforts of about 0.5% of the population. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the because of the, the important role of geography, that local communities are just going to be essential to be the vehicles for doing this work. How would you counsel a state chronic disease program because they're very rarely sort of operating at that community level unless they're under a directive from the federal government to distribute some of this money to communities. And they tend to think more statewide and system-wide. How can they sort of get involved in this game and what kinds of roles and contributions can they play in that key role of activating a community? Uh, And as you said, it's not a a large percentage of the community, but that really critical 0.5% of the local population that ends up being the influential factor that can steer a local debate towards the provision of important resources. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And, And so we grapple with this every day. There is a natural symbiosis that you're trying to generate in doing this work because we're a statewide foundation. And so, you know, our community is the state of California, 40 million people. And what we've recognized is that there is, you have to start locally, but you don't stop locally. You have to uh, network and bridge the work that's happening across different places in the state and create these regional and ultimately statewide networks of effort that add up in, in many cases to advocacy for state policy, state level policy change. But in terms of who decides that agenda, that has to come from the people closest to the pain, the people that are basically experiencing the inequity in their day to day lives, because we know what needs to be fixed. That's not what matters. It's whose priorities control how that agenda gets set. That's that's really the, the fundamental question. It, it, if it's in the domain of systems leaders, like, you know, myself, like, uh, you know, a public health director who's saying that the issue is obesity or the issue is poor diet, then that's where the resources will go. But if it's in the domain of communities to make that decision and they have the opportunity to sort of prioritize, the answer is going to be something very different. It's going to be about community safety. It's going to be about access to jobs. It's going to be about how policing is managed in their communities. And all of these things, whether you believe it or not, I, I, you know, the, the evidence is there. If we can improve those things, we can improve health outcomes because health is fundamentally about opportunity. It's not about just behavior. And these are the opportunity obstacles that communities are defining as the the most salient in their lives. So bottom line, it's not you start local, but you don't stay local. You've got to you've got to build out from local and create the kind of networks and symbiosis that's necessary across places to ultimately impact the entire state. It also sounds like 
if you're an obesity program manager at a state health department, that one of the first things you need to do before you begin approaching community is go around your department and talk to the other folks and say that you want to do this because there's no guarantee if you're bringing in federal obesity dollars that the community that you reach out to, maybe you picked it out because the obesity prevalence in that community is really high or you identified that there was a, a food desert there and you want to do some work, but there's no guarantee if we follow this model that that community is going to say, well, the first thing we want to work on is the thing that you came to us with interest in. They may say, yes, that's all interesting to us, but what we really want to talk about is the lighting on the streets. Um, and that may be money that you can use, uh, that, that may be a problem you can use your money towards addressing, but it may not be. And so if you have your drug control and your population health for, uh, approaches to behavioral health team with you, you can connect to them as well. If, if the community wants to speak to those people, you're sort of serving partly as a broker and a navigator of the full broader public health system to sort of patch them to through to resources that they that they really want to tap into. Yeah, I think that you've crystallized the challenge. And you know, when I say what matters is who decides that's what you just described. You know, so if you're an obesity program manager at the state level, you've already decided that that's the issue that's of import in your work. And so you're inclined to try to impose that agenda on communities. You know, and again, not maliciously. I mean, you're right. trying to help, but you're saying your problem is obesity. And that already is, you know, <laughs> it's hubristic at, at, at a minimum, but it's not even close to reality. You know, when people are being locked up or deported or, you know, being made homeless and you're telling them that the problem is obesity, I mean, you're, you're, you're in a di on a different planet than their reality. So what's your responsibility to essentially frame your ability to help in a way that's actually relevant to the lives of the people that you're trying to help? What What is your responsibility? And I think you've described one approach, which is to work across your agency to find ways to braid and link resources that facilitate you being able to do two things. One is allow communities to set their own agendas and priorities, and B, to essentially invest resources towards the root of many problems, the root of you know tobacco use and obesity and various other different types of public health programs are often very similar. And so what is it that you can do with your combined, your pooled resources to tackle that root cause? So one of the things that uh, I like to say is that if you're going to be an employee of government, to be effective, you better be a master of bureaucracy. And that the that it's important to understand all of the rules, whether those rules are procurement, hiring, what can be done with money and what can't be done with money uh, in order to know best how to use the tools that uh, are at your disposal and how to use that information to advance your objectives. Uh, and so to sort of not necessarily, um, but simply not to simply stand down in the face of bureaucratic obstacles, but to be able to use them uh, to advance your objectives. One of the things that it strikes me in all of this is how do we begin to make the connection to tie back to outcomes and results? And how do we connect the work that public health ends up supporting that comes out of these communities? And how do we tap the resources that we typically have? Because it's very rare that we have a kind of flexibility that an endowment might have, where there's a pot of money and there are social purposes which are articulated in the mission statement of that endowment. And as long as the grants that that endowment 
issues are in support of that mission statement, then there are really no objections and concerns. I'm looking at some of my tobacco tax dollars, and they come with a specific focus either on tobacco prevention or the mitigation of cancer that results from the use of tobacco. And so what are some examples perhaps that you can point to of places around the country or maybe in California where folks have taken money that looks like it has a lot of strings and rules attached to it and been able to use it creatively in ways that allow them to give the money over to the community, have the community direct it to the thing that's of major priority to them with the understanding that there are going to be all these sequelae, these potential benefits that grow out of the disbursement of those funds that are in line with the objectives of those funding sources. Yeah, that's the great question, right? That's you know, it's translating, you know, sort of government speak and restrictions into meaningful resources for communities. That's that's the artistry of public health practice in a nutshell. I'm going to give you two examples. One I was personally involved with when I was the Alameda County Public Health Director, and this was in. I think 2004, and bioterrorism was still a big sort of source of funding for local public health departments, and we were all stepping up our bioterrorism prevention plans, and we'd been through SARS and and various other different, you know, anthrax and various other things. I happened to have been in Connecticut during uh, the anthrax episode when uh, a 97-year-old lady in Connecticut died of anthrax through cross-contamination in her mail, and I got caught up in the whirlwind of having to design a protocol to test a, a postal distribution center for anthrax residue. So in 2004, I was in California and bioterrorism money was coming down and people were trying to develop these plans. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, was very clear to me, and we, we'd seen examples of it, there was a heat wave in the Chicago area in the mid 90s. And many elderly people died, many low income people died for lack of air conditioning and safe places to seek respite from the heat. And a study was done that showed that poverty wasn't the best predictor of who died because similarly poor places had very different mortality rates despite similar exposure to heat. And what they found was social networks and social connectedness was critical to essentially protect people from death, from prolonged heat wave. And so this whole notion of social isolation and people being disconnected started to present itself as an important variable in, in community health. So when the bioterrorism money came down, we designed a plan in Alameda County, which would essentially uh, help communities organize uh, themselves to be able to manage uh, in the face of a, an acute disaster by building on their nascent social networks within those communities. The idea was if we could strengthen essentially social cohesion and bring people together in a time when there was no crisis, that when there was a crisis, they could lean on those networks to essentially protect themselves and particularly the most vulnerable because we knew government couldn't be everywhere and government certainly um, in, in the first 48 to 72 hours was, was not going to be there for people. So we took bioterrorism money and we went door to door in two of our communities that we saw as being the most vulnerable, East Oakland and West Oakland. And we gave people emergency you know, preparation kits, but the goal was really to essentially invite them to participate in community planning for emergencies and to create stronger social networks by facilitating ongoing opportunities for people to come together in their neighborhoods and communities. When we presented this plan to our funders at the state. The state said, no, you can't do that. That's not bioterrorism. Yeah, it's not bioterrorism prevention. And we said, well, we have very good evidence that it is. And they said, no, you shouldn't do that. And in fact, 
somebody threatened that if I did it, we'd go to jail for misappropriating money. But we did it. And it ended up being essentially the, the, the core funding that led to uh, subsequent efforts to organize those communities and build more resilient communities for not just, you know, acute disasters, but for what we call the kind of the constant hurricane in the lives of low-income people in Alameda County, that they were facing kind of disaster-level threats on a day-in, day-out basis. We just didn't, we didn't describe them as such. So that was the root of, you know, some of the work that I've done subsequently with organizing as a strategy to enhance community health. It's this notion of building community resilience, both at the individual level, at the family level, and then at the community level. The other example I would give is, you know, essentially some work that happened in Fresno, California around what they call their Parks for All campaign, which was really kind of taking an obesity prevention agenda and turning it upside down and saying, look, you know, you say the issue is obesity. We say the issue is there aren't meaningful and safe spaces to recreate in Fresno. And so they took resources, some from us and some from others, to develop this Parks for All campaign and delved into the city's land use planning documents and found a five-to-one differential between Parks per Capita and the southern in, in the southern part of the city compared to the northern wealthier part of the city. In other words, the wealthier part had five times more parks per capita than the low-income part of the city. And so they used the city's own data. They took the report and they blew it up and they put it on bus shelters. They put it on, on billboards. They you know, put it in the newspaper. They wrote op-eds. And they drove the city to essentially reprioritize its park spending plan to essentially bring park resources to um, the southern part of Fresno and applied for some state grants and won some $10 million to essentially invest in parks and the parks master plan for the city of Fresno. So that's an example of a community taking an obesity prevention agenda and turning it into substantial resources for a recreational space that is equitable across the city of Fresno. Mm, that's fascinating. In another life, I was um, a political science student, and I wrote a paper for a master's class in political science uh, on the Model Cities Project from the 1960s. And it was part of Lyndon Johnson's uh, Great Society Initiative. And there's a common perception in policy circles, certainly in Washington, that the Great Society was a huge failure. And, and very often people will point to programs like the Model Cities program that were deployed and shut down within two, three years time. My own research showed that the driving force that sort of ended the Model Cities program was the reaction of democratic machines in urban areas that felt threatened by a lot of the initiatives to seed community voice and activate community uh, empowerment. And so I wonder, you mentioned the threat that you might be jailed for making use of the obesity money in the way that you've, you've made of it. To do work that challenges systems leads systems to push back. And what kind of pushback can public health expect and what can they do in response to that? How do they, I mean, what you describe is an act of remarkable courage. I don't know that I, if threatened with jail, would be able to say, well, I'm going to do it anyway, but not necessarily assuming a, a case is, is quite as dramatic as that. What can public health do to continue to speak truth to power, which is an incredibly important role, despite the fact that for most of us listening to this podcast, uh, we are employees of government and we have to be careful about that. What 
advice can you give the audience about balancing that role within the context of a public administration function? Yeah, that's such a fantastic question. I mean, really, really well put, and particularly at the state level. I think it's less of an issue at the local or county level. It's still an issue, but it's much more an issue at the state level where things are just so highly politicized and there's so much you know, political scrutiny on actions. I'll say two things. One, when I was threatened with jail, I mean, I, I, I figured that that was an idle threat anyways. But And the thing that, that saved me was that Katrina happened a few months later and all of a sudden everybody was talking about community resiliency. So I was never in any serious jeopardy of actually going to jail. But, you know, the question that you're asking is one that, you know, I've faced so many times and I've seen so many of my colleagues face and some come out on, you know, the good end, you know, a handful come out on, on the short end of that, even in places like San Francisco where, you know, the politics are pretty liberal. And that is a, there's a lesson I learned in this work early on from a mayor that I worked with in Connecticut who ultimately became the governor of Connecticut. And he told me, uh, he said, Tony, it's it's not that I, I, I recognize you're the health director and you've got an obligation to, you know, do what you think in your best judgment uh, will improve the health or protect the health of the citizens of this community. All I want you to do is, is give me a heads up, you know, yeah. about, you know, the positions that you're going to be taking. Because I don't want to be out there and get ambushed by somebody saying that your health director is doing X, Y, and Z. I don't want you to seek my permission. I want you to just give me a heads up that something is coming up because you're essentially taking a political position or a health position that could be translated into a political position. And I was like, uh-huh. So that's what it is. My political bosses don't want to be ambushed. It's not that they want me to sort of fall into lockstep with their particular world perspective because they recognize that health is special. There's no anti-health constituency. And there are things that we can do from a health perspective that a lot of other people can't do. For instance, our land use partners frequently really welcome us to the table because they may be pushing a smart growth agenda or, you know, some sort of, you know, urban design agenda that sounds to developers as sort of a political agenda. If they can justify that agenda, density or what have you, around a health outcome, um, obesity prevention, you know, uh, reducing social isolation, you know, reducing vehicle miles traveled and its impact on, on climate change and the health benefits of that. They feel that they can move much further faster, you know, behind a health argument than they can behind it, just a strictly planning argument. So health has this sort of, you know, credibility and kind of somewhat less controversial kind of mantle that it can actually use to leverage policy strategies. The best example I have of this is when I was in Alameda County and, and we decided to take on the port of Oakland, which is the fourth biggest container port in the United States, and it was producing significant uh, diesel particulate emission in the West Oakland community, a low-income traditionally African-American community, through port trucking, through port uh, diesel trains through burning so-called bunker fuel that uh, many of the uh, cargo ships used, and so the diesel particulate emissions in West Oakland and the you know the consequent uh, hospitalizations for asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and congestive heart failure and various other forms of cardiovascular disease were essentially off the charts. And we decided we had to go after the port to take steps to essentially reduce its toxic footprint. And before we did that, we went to our county supervisors, who some of whom had served or did serve on the port commission, and said, "Look, we're doing this. We're just giving you a heads up that we're taking on the port. We're going to take them on publicly." We're we're going to write op-eds. We're going to stand with, you know, environmental justice actors in West Oakland that are fighting this particular issue. And you should know 
that we're doing this. And we're not telling you to seek your permission. We're telling you that this is our obligation as a health agency. And we got incredible support from our supervisors who appreciated the fact that we, we didn't let them get ambushed. And that, you know, they said to me, they said, look, we may come out against you publicly, but we respect your right to take that position. That's, in fact, that is your obligation as a health officer for this county. So we appreciate that. And that's, in fact, what happened. One of them you know, came out against me politically saying, you know, I disagree. We have to balance economic interests against the health interests, blah, blah, blah. But they didn't come after me to get me fired because, you know, I'd given them a heads up that we were going to do this and I wasn't seeking permission. I was just giving them, you know, trying to protect them from being ambushed. Well, that's a great, uh, positive, inspirational note uh, to end on. I'm, I'm afraid we're out of time. I could continue talking to you for several hours more because this is so fascinating and engaging. But I really want to thank you for your time. You've been really generous uh, with us, and I have learned so much from this conversation. And I am pretty confident I'll be following up with some additional questions from my own state uh, in writing with you. So thank you very much, Dr. Eiden. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the thoughtfulness of your questions, and this, this was very enjoyable. There are a couple of places that your audience can go to to learn more about, you know, the work of the California Endowment and some of these ideas. One is www.buildinghealthycommunities.org. That's all one word. The second is www.calendow.org. And the third is for one of our regional partners, www.barhi.org. And that's a regional constellation of somewhere between 12 and 12 or 13 local county health departments in the San Francisco Bay Area that have uh, come together out of frustration, quite frankly, at the limitation of public health tools, uh, given the significant public health challenges that we're facing, particularly around health equity in California. Great. Well, thank, thank you, you so much. And again, thank you very much from the whole chronic disease community for your time and your thoughts. Well, yeah, let me just, just thank you in particular, Dr. Kaplan. I, I think that your perspective and, you know, you talk about once a long time ago being a political scientist. I think that's clearly informed your approach to chronic disease prevention, and, and, and we need that. We, we desperately need people who understand sort of the political context of this work. And when I say political, you know, I'm not talking about partisan politics. I'm talking about a definition of politics, which is the struggle over the allocation of scarce and precious social goods. And, you know... Health is a precious social good, and the resources that we're talking about are distributed politically. So having an understanding of that and not running under the table every time you hear the word politics is really critical, I think, to doing this work in a way that actually can have the kind of lasting impact that's necessary. Great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to Health to be Determined, a podcast brought to you by the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. Please visit www.chronicdisease.org to listen to more podcasts like this one.